Welcome to the Get the Knack Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, coming to you from the Ocean Shores Get the Knack Podcast studio in Washington State, and I am joined by my good friend, my old Navy buddy. He writes for popmatters.com, knows all about pop culture, has forgotten more about music than I'll ever know. He is Chris Ingalls. Chris, welcome back to the program. Hey, Jerry. How's it going? Wonderful. First of all, Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. We probably won't yep. talk before before the New Year, so Happy New Year. Happy Holidays to you, my friend. Thanks, and same to you as well. And uh, it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a lot's happened since we last talked. It's been just a little over a month, I guess, right? Yeah, and, uh, you know, you're always uh, a monthly guest on the show, and uh, yep. so it gives us a chance to catch up on all things pop culture, and there is plenty to talk about, as you as you alluded to. Uh, first, I hate to start the show with a downer, but one of the topics I wanted to talk about was the Laurel Canyon documentary that I watched on Epics. It's been out for a while, um, but it talks about the Laurel Canyon scene in the in the mid to, to late 60s, which so much fantastic music came out of. And, and some of the guys that were living there in Laurel Canyon, uh, just above L.A., were the Monkees. And unfortunately, yes. uh, we lost Mike Nesmith of, of the Monkees. And uh, wanted to talk to you about that because, you know, a lot of folks think, you know, that the monkeys were just thrown together. They weren't very good. They weren't good musicians, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but you had uh, Mickey Dolenz, Nesmith, uh, Peter Tork, and uh, Davy Jones. And yep. and these guys um, made some uh, iconic pop hits, yep. and, and they had a television show. They were supposed to be the U.S. answer to the Beatles, which we'll sure, get into. Yeah. Um, so, you know... What what's your take on the monkeys and and Mike Mike Nesmith in particular? Well, I think that you know you're you're absolutely right. When you know, I think what happened, I, if I'm not mistaken, was that um, uh, you know American uh, TV pro- producers saw what was happening with the Beatles and their popularity, and so they decided to basically create this made-for-TV version of of the Beatles. And so they did that with these guys, and it was a, it was a band that was very much put together by by committee. I mean, they they weren't formed organically; they were sort of put together. People auditioned to be basically a member of a band on a TV show. And um, and it just so happened that they were all musicians. I mean, people say that Nesmith was the musician of the bunch. He was probably the most talented musician of the bunch, certainly. He was the one who wrote, you know, he wrote some of their songs and and, and, and all that. But, uh, you know, they were all they were all musicians and, and they did make some some solid pop music. Um, and I think what's interesting and what, what a lot of people may not know is that Nesmith following the monkeys after, after the TV show went off the air, went on to a, a pretty prolific, if under under the radar solo career throughout the 70s and 80s and, and really made some interesting music kind of a little bit more country folk type stuff but very very well made music and um also something of a, of a music video pioneer he sort of helped kind of create like long form music videos he was sort of on the forefront of music video before mtv came out and so i think in a lot of ways kind of a a, a bit of a renaissance man who you know a man of many talents and so it's you know it's 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 kind of sad to see him go but i think he did a lot of great things in his uh, in his life and also uh, a lot of people i think probably already know this but one bit of trivia about mike nesmith is you know about mike nesmith's mother right absolutely i was just going to mention it if you weren't going to <laughs> <laughs> she invented whiteout or yep, liquid, liquid paper. paper. So so and and I was reading something about the fact that she sold 
I think in the seventies, I think she sold like the liquid paper uh, name or the product or whatever to like Gillette or something like that for something like fifty million dollars, which is you know a, a lot of money. That was you know a lot of money then is a hell of a lot. You know, it would probably be something like a couple hundred million now or something. But um, interesting little fact about him. But um, uh, yeah, certainly a, a very talented guy. I mean, they were all talented musicians, um, uh, and I think that it's a bit of a shame that they were sort of relegated to, oh, well, they were just this made-for-TV pop band. No, they were actually really good. And and I think, like I said, Nesmith was kind of the most talented of the four. And and uh, I think if you aren't familiar with his solo career, it's definitely worth looking into because there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Yeah, I'm definitely not, right? So it's kind of interesting. Um, in in addition to the Beatles, it was it was almost like the Monkees were the, the one band answer to the entire British invasion, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah. never mind just the, you know, we don't want to mention just the Beatles in that particular case, but, right. you know, you had the Rolling Stones, you had the Who, and you had a lot of other bands that were yep. were getting popular here in the United States that were coming over from, from England. I mean, you know, even... Uh, you know, Peter Noon and and, and that ilk were were yep. making yep. Uh, U.S. radio uh, pop hits sure. and Ed, uh, Ed Sullivan show appearances and and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, and and then you had groups like the Zombies and and you know Rod Argent was was doing his thing before uh, before he was Argent. Um, yeah, yeah. So yep. yeah, it, it's it's you know. Interesting because Peter Tork was the nudist of the group. I unfortunately <laughs> learned by watching this fucking documentary. Um, you know, the best thing Mickey Dolans did after the monkeys was create Amy Dolans. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then you had Davy Jones, if if I'm not mistaken, was the first one to pass away uh, from the from the group. Yeah, I think that was probably about maybe 10, 10 years ago. I'm thinking, I'm not sure. Anyway, yeah, yeah. But that was a while. That was kind of sudden. I think that was kind of unexpected. And, you know, they were all fairly young i mean they, none of them were elderly i mean uh, i think i think um i think uh nesmith was uh i don't know late 70s um so yeah i mean it's sad um and i and it's funny I, I saw well not really funny but i saw uh, mickey dolan's uh twitter uh he posted something on twitter it was actually really sweet you know it was just like a really you know he's he obviously he's he's devastated by this so sure uh and and i and as as i mentioned i think you saw it on twitter because you commented or, or liked it is that um it's weird that we have more surviving beetles right now than surviving monkeys um which i just <laughs> kind of weird there's two beetles left but there's only one monkey left <laughs> right right exactly yeah and you know the funny thing about the monkeys the only thing i remember was the guy who was the voice of fred flintstone made a guest appearance on the show one time that's all Did i remember watch- of the show yeah, so you didn't obviously. You and I didn't watch the show when it was originally in the air, but but they they seemed to gain a whole new generation of fans in the eighties because I think it was on MTV or something. It in was the syndicated 80s. somewhere, and and I think yeah. it was MTV. Yeah, and, and and so you have these people who weren't even born when the monkeys came out, who were all of a sudden all over the show, and then I think the band themselves reunited once or twice to sort of you know uh, capitalize on that, I guess. So it's interesting to see this sort of you know, resurgence every once in a while of this band. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad though. I think, like I said, I think Nesmith was, was really a pioneer in a lot of ways. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a sad, uh, you know, it's sad news today. Yeah. And, and like I said, you know, these guys were kind of marginalized because of that, you know, um, you know, they, they were the 1960s new edition. Um, yeah. (laughs) 
that's <laughs> thrown together. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good way to put it. To, yeah, it's a good way to put it. Right. And, and the thing is, is you know, Nesmith did write some of their songs. They did have some professional songwriters writing a lot of their stuff. And um, one of their biggest hits, I'm a Believer, written by, do you know? No. Neil Diamond. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> fair <laughs> just 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 a little just a little trivia that you can drop at your next uh, family gathering yeah great um because <laughs> you're, you're not welcome what the hell i'm talking about but here's 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 my point to that watching to bring this conversation full circle watching the laurel canyon documentary you've got yeah. jackson brown crosby mm-hmm. stills nash and young the mamas and papas you have all these these seminal artists of the 60s and yep. the monkeys are mixing with these guys and yep. and, and women, of course. Um, and it's like they belonged, right? So I looked at yep. the monkeys yep. in a whole new light at that point. Like, wow, yep. these guys were respected. Sure. They're, they're, sure. they're of these these artists that that basically created the, the Southern California um their own version of country rock or southern rock um you know and and the eagles were born out of that and i learned Mm -hmm. so much Mm -hmm. about how linda ronstadt was involved in the formation of the eagles yep yep which i had they were like they were they were like her backing band or something yeah glenn fry and uh and don henley went on tour with with linda ronstadt and glenn fry according to this wanted to become a great rock band he wanted to create mm-hmm. this thing and he glenn fry uh had a lot to do with the formation of of the band itself but but linda ronstadt pushed them right yeah and then yep. you had Joni mitchell in the middle of all this with with crosby sure. stills and nash and it, it just was really really interesting that so much of what we consider quote-unquote classic rock today came yeah. out of this one geographic location in Mm -hmm. one moment or sliver in time which is amazing to me yeah yeah absolutely it's funny you mentioned uh joni mitchell she was a recent uh kennedy center honoree i think uh the the latest batch was i think they did that uh whenever that was last week or this week and it's interesting they this is the first um they didn't do the kennedy center honors last year because of covid and they the the um this is the first time in I think five years that the president actually attended because Trump blew it off every year because because I think it's because he knew that everybody would boycott it if he showed up. <laughs> but he's also you know I, I don't I don't think he he's the most creative or understanding of of creativity uh, no, out no, there. No, 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 and that's interesting because it's like. Um, you would I actually remember when 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 Obama was president, you used to see like every once in a while he'd come out with this list of like his favorite books of the year. And you know right. Trump never did that because no. the guy never read. Exactly. Um, or, or or even like favorite movies or favorite music. I mean, Obama would put out his favorite music and there was some you know, there was some pretty cool stuff in there. You know, he would talk about like Jay Z and people like that. And meanwhile, Trump probably just listens to, you know, uh God bless, you know, the USA or whatever. Um, <laughs> Him and Lee Greenwood or, or Lee like Green this. he's a Lee Greenwood fan, yeah. <laughs> got it on repeat but um yeah anyway um uh, but i i actually have not seen that documentary you have to i'm glad, I'm glad you reminded me yeah because i've i've and what's it what's what's it on what did you Epics. see it on 
Epics, right? Uh-huh. So you can get the six months of Epics for like three or four dollars a month. And and the reason I did it, we so when we were in California, we had Comcast and Epics was part of our package. So I had okay. started that documentary, but it was kind of one of these things I fell asleep to. So I never watched it in full. It's only a couple of episodes. I want to say okay. it's no more than four. And um I never finished it. So um I got Epics again, not for that but to watch Chapel Weight with Adrian Brody, which right. that'll lead us to our eventual Stephen King conversation. Uh, here we go. It right. Right. Well, we'll get there. That, that's for later. Um, so yep. uh, I saw that Laurel Canyon was still on there. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to watch it. So I watched it from the beginning and it's fantastic documentary. It's great stuff. You it, and And I think I texted this to you. And we've seen it with other things, right? Like like them trying to recreate Woodstock or um, yep. Monterey Pop, or there's this great um, kind of. It used to be this underground music festival in San Francisco that's gone all corporate. Coachella used to be this thing, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't force a happening. It just sure. happens to be ha- has to happen organically, and that's what this this Laurel Canyon area. North, you know, in the in the hills of, of Los Angeles, was mm-hmm. was a happening. It was an extended happening because it was you know over the course of anywhere from three to five years. But when you've got you know the beginning and basically the end of the Mamas and Papas, you've got Crosby, Stills, Nash, and then Neil Young and how that all happens, and then you mm-hmm. get Joni Mitchell, which is thrown into the the crux of of that situation with graham nash um you know our house comes out of of, uh, a real situation something that really happened um so you know and then you have the monkeys you you've got jim morrison in the doors you know Mm -hmm. you get jim morrison riding around in a in a pair of you know shorts on a bicycle uh and wearing (laughs) nothing else in some home movies you know and 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 that whole story about you know his arrests and, and all that and um you know, they talked a little bit about the Altamont uh, concert with the the Stones. Oh yeah, sure. Well, that's that was that was in your neck of the woods yep. where you were living before, I wasn't to, it? Wasn't it right near? It was like Livermore or someplace around. Yeah, there? just uh, just east of Livermore, and I used to drive by the Altamont Raceway every day. That was part of my commute. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a. I read. I actually read a book. I mean, I was familiar with the Altamont story, but I actually read a book about Altamont about a year ago. And man, what a what a terrifying situation that was well you don't get the hell's angels to be your fucking security right right right. it was it was a bunch of people making really stupid decisions exactly (laughs) right and and you know i mean i heaven forbid i say anything bad about the hell's angels but um yeah (laughs) i don't want that on my head but you know i mean they were they were out of oakland california right that's where they originated and i don't Mm -hmm. know why the rolling stones felt like that was a good idea but you know People died, and and it becomes a bad, you know, a, a black mark in music history. Yeah. But um, the the point is, this whole, you know, the the places in, uh, you know, that they talked about um, these these fertile grounds for this incredible music that comes out of the '60s, the mid '60s. This is stuff that we look back at today as as more the birth of of rock and roll as we know it. Uh, at least for for some of us white folks, hate to say it, mm-hmm. hate to put it that mm-hmm. way, but you, know, you you kind of go back to the fifties and you look at all the stuff Elvis stole. Um, yeah. You look at Chuck yeah. Berry. You look at you know 
even bb king and that kind of thing right is you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. right the dawn or the birth of rock and roll but yep. rock and roll grew up in the mid-60s in laurel canyon in california yeah i mean it's certainly as we know it i mean it's certainly um a lot of a lot of what kind of came to be like in the 70s and even into now with everything from like you know indie folk and whatever i mean it it definitely did have its have its roots there and it's and it's interesting that you say that you can't like make you know like things events that become sort of corporate and they sort of get watered down and they lose their authenticity i mean the thing is is that a lot of this stuff was just sort of like you know rock and roll was still kind of in its early stages so all these things were just happening because you know somebody had to invent it you know what i mean and and you know woodstock is an example of that and then they keep trying to recreate woodstock with all these anniversaries and they always end up just becoming ridiculous because there's like you know the, the one in 99 with all the rapes and all this bullshit and then they try to do a 50th anniversary and it just fell apart because of logistics and it's like you know you can't i understand the need to kind of like capture some sort of nostalgia but it's like it's not the same you know you can't uh, that's why these kinds of things when they first start out they're so they're so they're so interesting and they're so they're that you know they they're they spark so much great stuff is that it's not it's happening sort of organically and uh yeah so i i think that that's um it's a really interesting time and uh you know, it's I, I'm I'm now I now I have to get epics. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Another fucking streaming service. Um, I know, right? Uh, well, we just cut the cord recently with cable, so we're all streaming now. So we're dependent mm-hmm. on our internet and Wi-Fi and everything. But we got yeah, so many streaming favorite. services, and um, but um, but the 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 thing about it is, it it was it was happening. You, it, these these folks, they were all flop houses. Yeah. For for some of the most iconic musicians and singers and songwriters that have ever walked the earth, and it just blows my mind. This all happened over over this three to maybe even seven year period in Southern California, and mm-hmm. and what comes out of it is some of the greatest music ever recorded, and it yeah. blo- and it just blows my mind. And again, it's like you know we we live in this digital media world, and you can't force things to go viral. Right, things just catch right. fire. Right. Same right. thing right. with that. It's lightning in a bottle. It'll never happen again. And we just need to be thankful that you know I still have that album from Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young uh, on vinyl in the cupboard right here next to me. So I own it, and uh, I'm happy for it. And I have a new, brand new appreciation for all this. Same time frame, and this is what you wanted to talk about on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me do yeah. this first. Uh, you're listening to the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I am joined by my good friend, Chris Ingalls, who is in Boston, Massachusetts, and we're talking about all things pop culture tonight here on the show. And Chris, you wanted to talk about this new Beatles documentary. What is it on Disney Plus, another streaming service that I have yes. yet to have a chance to watch. I wanted to watch mm-hmm. some of it today, but uh, work, mm-hmm. the day job, uh, got in the way. Um, yeah. And uh, but I have heard some things about it. I've heard some good yeah. things. Um, mm-hmm. I've also heard some weird things, like Bell- yeah. Billy, Billy Preston's involvement. You know, will it go around yeah. in circles? Um, and you know. I know you're a big Beatles fan, so mm-hmm. kind of what are your observations? What are your thoughts so far in watching the documentary? Um, well, okay. Well, first of all, for, for those who don't know, it's it's called Get Back, and it is a three-part documentary, and I think each part is about two and a half hours long. So it's a, it's a good, you know, I think it's a solid, uh, you know, eight, seven, eight hours long, and it's it's all 
documentary footage from January of 1969. And originally, um, it, what it is is the Beatles are getting together to record an album that will, um, you know, that is being recorded. And then at the end of the month, they are going to do some sort of concert, but they haven't yet determined where it's going to take place or, or whatever. So, um, this was originally made into a documentary that came out in 1970 called let it be. And it was sort of a making of the album, let it be. And it was about, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half, two hours long. And it was directed by this guy named Michael Lindsay hogg. And basically Peter Jackson took all of this footage and sort of refurbished it and basically added a whole lot more of it. So it's a completely different movie. It's a, it's, it's much longer um, for one thing, but it's also the tone of the movie. The tone of the documentary is much different than the original film. Um, the original film basically showed the Beatles, you know, just in a really shitty mood and not getting along and just trying like hell to make music. And it just wasn't coming. And, Peter Jackson's take on it was much better in that it just showed all sides of it. It's like, actually they were extremely, they were an extremely creative time and they were making some really great music and it wasn't a bunch of arguments. I mean, George Harrison did leave the band for a couple of days, but other than that, they as, you, got as you do, as you do. And, you know, he left the band, I think for good reasons. I mean, he was kind of, people weren't, you know, he had songs to contribute and they were not really taken very seriously, which is bullshit because they were great songs. And I think he was just like, well, fuck it, I'm leaving. And then he eventually, they talked him into coming back and they recorded, they were rehearsing the songs in this film studio. And um, then they moved to a regular studio that the Apple studios in, in London. And then they ended up doing this rooftop concert um, on the roof of the building. And that was sort of like the final day. And most of the final episode is uh, them sort of getting ready for this show and actually performing the show. And it's, I've seen a lot of this footage from the original film, but it's fascinating because they show the whole thing and it's the sound and the picture quality is amazing. And, um, uh, you know, Billy Preston, as you mentioned before, Billy Preston, you know, who's this, 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 uh, sort of, uh, R and B keyboard player, kind of this young whiz kid at the time, they bring him in cause he's in town and he ends up playing on the album. He ends up playing at this rooftop concert. He's on get back. He's in let it be. And he's the only musician who has ever co credited on a Beatles album. I mean, you know, get back is credited to the Beatles featuring Billy Preston, which is like, has never happened with this band before. So that's significant. But I think that um essentially what's interesting about this if you're a fan of the band if you're a major fan of the band it's absolutely worth seeing if you are a fan of the whole concept of the creative process of making music it's definitely for you and if you're if you're both of these people then it's even better and yes it's long yes there are stretches where it's a lot of sort of like minutia where they're trying to pick apart you know getting a song just right and it is a little some of it just does drag on but i think it's totally worth it and um you know a lot of people have talked I, you, there's been a lot of stuff online where they talk about this one part of the movie where you basically see you witness paul writing basically coming up with the song get back just out of thin air and you watch this process taking place and it's like holy shit this is a song that i've heard a million times and i've known since i was five years old 
and I just watched Paul McCartney put it together. I mean, it's, you know, it's real music geek stuff. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not for everybody, but I think everybody owes it to at least check out parts of it. Cause it's really quite fascinating because they're putting, t- they're basically putting together songs that everybody knows, you know, the let it be album has let it be. It has get back. It has all these songs that are part of, you know, rock culture. Um, and so I found it fascinating. And, um, again, it helps if you're kind of a dork about this stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and Peter Jackson just did such an amazing job. It looks like the footage was shot yesterday. I mean, it's that good. Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely thumbs up. I would, I would recommend it. I basically blazed through it over Thanksgiving weekend. (laughs) So, so it was like, as long as you blaze through that and not your Turkey, we'll be all right. right. Exactly. Well, it, it, I think it was, it was either Thursday, Friday, Saturday of Thanksgiving weekend. They, they were Friday, Saturday and Sunday. They released each episode, uh, you know, each like consecutive day. And so I would watch it like the day it came out or the day after it came out. So by Sunday night, I was all caught up. Um, but yeah, um, really good stuff. And, um, so, so one of the things, yeah. So obviously, you know, Peter Jackson, one of the, the great filmmakers of our lifetime, what, the thing that gets me, and, and this kind of dovetails into the conversation about the monkeys, right? The monkeys were the these underrated musicians um, and lightly regarded for a long time. A lot of the Beatles musicianship is lightly regarded, right? I mean, everybody talks about like Paul's, uh, you know, play by numbers style, and and you know, Ringo. Yeah. What Ringo wasn't the original drummer. Uh, I yeah. wonder what Pete Best thinks of this whole thing. But anyway, um, where would you put the the Beatles' like musicianship and craftsmanship and 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 all of that? I mean, how would well, you how would you describe all that? I mean, I think that <laughs> I think I would. I mean, there's a reason why they. I mean. One of the reasons why they're so highly regarded is because they were sort of, you know, the one of the first bands to write and perform all their own music. They were revolutionary in that sense. But beyond that, they were just really good at it. In terms of songwriting, you know, John and Paul and George to a lesser extent, just because George didn't get as many of the songs on the albums. I mean, they were just in terms of songwriting skill and melody and all that. I mean, it was it was terrific. And you see and I think you can see in the making in this movie paul seems to be the creative force he's the one who's kind of leading the way and i grew up for a long time being a lennon guy because he was the rebellious one and i thought that was really cool and i still think lennon was an amazing songwriter but over the years i've grown a more fond appreciation for mccartney just as a as a craftsman you know as a, as a songwriter in that sense and sure. so you you see all that and in terms of like musicianship i mean they weren't like shredders i mean we're not talking like you know they're they have this like you know they're they're these uh you know classically trained geniuses but they are pretty amazing musicians and you see that there when people talk about like ringo and they're like well ringo wasn't a flashy drummer well he didn't need to be neither was charlie watts for for that matter exactly exactly and these are people who don't Charlie Watts, Ringo Starr, they don't overplay. They they should they play exactly what needs to be played. And so what you see with this band is these four musicians who work so well together and they may not have been the flashiest players, they may not have been the fastest players, but that's not what the music was about. That's not what their music was about. So I would put them right up there. I mean, there is a reason why they are so highly regarded and it's because they were just a damn good band. 
and um, and it's great to you know it's it you hear the term fly on the wall when you talk when you talk about these kinds of movies these kinds of documentaries that's what it's like you're sure. in there watching you're watching history being made you know I mean no exaggeration whatsoever so yeah I mean I think there's a reason why they're you know people love them so much because the songs are great and they were great at it well see that leads me to the something we've talked about before but it's worth revisiting and and this mm-hmm. this debate continues to to rage on and people people want to say okay the beatles we still you know we love their hooks we love those pop songs we love all that and we can sing along and all that stuff and and they're more accessible than elvis presley right so in today's day and age in 2021 the Beatles resonate with more people than, say, an Elvis Presley. And my argument is because Elvis, as much as he broke down barriers in the 50s as far as what you could do on television and what you couldn't do and and all the different things, all of that is commonplace now. There's nothing yeah. that anybody's doing today, um, you know, that, I mean, sure, Elvis paved the way, right? But mm-hmm. But when it comes to his music... There's there's dedicated fans out there and and you know who know Lord love them right but the bottom line yeah. is you know the Beatles knew just like Phil Collins knew how to write hit songs they knew yeah. how to craft hit songs stuff that that you know radio airplay that that endures to this day hey, look paperback writer resonates with me for obvious reasons mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. And, and even things like you know the tax man. Right, yep. there's yep. there's songs that they wrote and that they performed and created that resonate. Now they get into the concept albums and start doing this this kind of mm-hmm. experimental stuff later on um, yep. because they could. And what gets me about it is they go from you know the Ed Sullivan Show darlings of 1964 mm-hmm. to being mm-hmm. able to do whatever the fuck they wanted by 1970. That's meteoric. Yeah, exactly. And I think that um, what happened was when they started, you know, when, in the early days when they were making music that was very popular and it was very easy for people to love and it was very poppy and everything like that, and they were accepted. And because of the fact that they were accepted and loved, they had sort of carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. And they're like, okay, well, that's great, but we're maturing now and we want to do all this. And everyone's like, oh, okay, well, the Beatles are doing it. Well, you know, people would follow them to the ends of the earth. And that's how they were able to make some music later on that was really weird that people still got into because it was like, you know, they the, the Beatles brought them along. And so they're like, it's kind of like... Um, one 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 sort of like more contemporary analogy that you could make to that is like REM. I mean, REM started out as this little indie band, this scruffy band that that suddenly became very popular. And then they're like, okay, we're going to start making some weird shit. And they started doing some kind of weirder stuff later on. And it was very popular because it was REM, you know. And 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 so they basically once you become popular and you have this enormous fan base, but you are creatively seeking other things. People are going to join you for the ride because they've, you've already hooked them. You know what I mean? And I think that's what happened with the Beatles is that they, they retained their popularity because they had such a huge fan base who was willing to, to, I mean, they probably lost a lot of fans when they started doing like the white album and stuff, but you know, who cares? You know, they, were, <laughs> they still had plenty of people who would right. still listen. Right. But to, to be able to, to have that carte blanche and earn that yeah. within, you know, five, six years is, is ridiculous. Right. It, it, you, you, yeah, the, the meteoric rise. Absolutely, I agree with you. That was, I mean, when you think about it, 
they were they were recording for less than 10 years. I think yeah. their first album was recorded in 62 or 63. They broke up in 70, less than a decade. That's insane. It is very insane. And you look at other groups, it took them 20, 30, 40 years to be able to, oh, I can do a concept mm-hmm. album now. Mm-hmm. I got to stop. You know, And look at the yeah. Beach Boys. Yeah. The only reason the Beach Boys were able to do anything goofy or off, off kilter was because Brian Wilson was mentally ill. So, I mean... <laughs> No yeah, offense. Mentally ill genius, whatever. Right. No offense, Brian Wilson, but, you know, fucking Pet Sounds is absolutely insane. It um, is. It's insane. It's insane. But it's and genius. It's genius. And then, and, 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 you know, who was influenced by that album? The Beatles. You know, so it's all connected. I mean, when the guy brings in beach sand into it and throws out all his furniture and, and, you know, there's something <laughs> a little off kilter there, but the guy makes one of the most iconic albums in music history, right? So, yeah, you know, and yeah. I, that's yeah. another one I own in the cabinet, right? I have Pet Sounds. Yeah. It's right? a great, great, great album. 100%. Yeah. And, and if you yeah. watch the, the movie with John Cusack, you realize, you know, uh, yes, a lot of it mercy, wasn't. Yeah. yeah, well, a lot of it wasn't his fault, and 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 all that stuff. Well, and he he had a pretty fucked up. Uh, you know, his dad was an was 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 a pain in the ass. And, oh, yeah. and, 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 and yeah, other I, members I, I, of the group that were, were that way. They wanted them to make Beach group, Boys yeah. music, yeah. right? They want, you know, they wanted them to make all these, you know, Jan and Dean surf hits instead of you know letting Brian yeah. Wilson do his thing. That's a perfect, I think that's a perfect example. I think the whole Brian Wilson thing where he did Pet Sounds, he did all this stuff because they were making the surf music. They were extremely popular. Brian Wilson's like, okay, now that I've got your attention, I'm going to lay something on you that's really fucked up. (laughs) And they're like, and they're like, okay, whatever. But you can't tell me this shit didn't influence people like Paul Simon. Right, no, I mean, it influenced a ton of people. Right, absolutely. I mean, Paul Simon's out there, you know, traveling Africa and South America looking for didgeridoos and shit. <laughs> I, you know, well, and, well Sergeant Sergeant Pepper, it, the I think the greatest uh, influence on Sergeant Pepper was Pet Sounds. I mean, Paul McCartney heard Pet Sounds, he's like, "This is it. This is what I'm going to do." Sure. So yeah, oh, which yeah. is great. And and yeah. yeah, and and the thing of it is, and that was the it goes all the way back, full circle back to the whole Laurel Canyon thing, right? Because they were all yeah. influencing each other, and I had no idea what a big influence freaking Jackson Brown was on all these people. Everybody thought Jackson Brown was like the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I just look at him mm-hmm. as like some '80s shill. But you know, well, it was a '70s shill actually. But yeah, <laughs> well, everybody cashed well, actually, in on the some, MTV some, era. Right. I actually, I actually, yeah, and I actually, um, a lot of his 70s stuff, I actually, it's not cool to say this, but I actually, a lot of the stuff he did in the 70s, I actually really like. And uh, Jackson Brown kind of discovered Warren Zevon. I don't know if Warren Zevon has mentioned it all. No, no, he's not. Okay. And Because and- he was part of that, but he was a little bit later on. He was, he didn't really start making records until like the mid 70s um, for the most part. But uh, yeah, Jackson Brown basically like pulled him out of obscurity and produced his first couple albums. So, gotcha. Um, and, and we've yeah. talked about Todd Rundgren before too and, and mm-hmm, his influence mm-hmm. on, on mm-hmm. everything you know coming out of that that time period and you know i got showtime now because my wife wanted to watch the continuation of dexter but now it'll give me a chance to watch the go-go's documentary which i have not a chance to watch yet so um oh wow i'm surprised you haven't seen it yet i know i know i've been binge watching all kinds of other craziness i I binge watched fargo again like the tv series um and it's brilliant freaking television and uh it's it's fantastic um I don't know if you've had a chance to go to a theater yet and go see the new Ghostbusters film, but uh, we went to I go haven't. see that. It is the yeah. sequel we all needed and all wanted from the original yep. original films. The way they the uh, the tribute to Harold Ramis was um, 
there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Uh, I hate to say, uh, but so you uh, liked it. I loved it, and yeah. you know, I forgive a lot of the stuff they did because I wanted this film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have. You know, I I liked the Melissa McCarthy Kristen Wiig film. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't understand the hate that it gets, uh, but that's more yeah. love letter, right? It's not canon. This right. this is a hundred percent canon. It, it right. has the three surviving members, and they do a fantastic tribute to uh, Harold Ramis. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah, and uh, so if you get a chance to see it, uh, I'm a big fan of the original films. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, and uh, it was great. It was kind of funny. They um, at LA Comic Con uh, that uh, I worked at last weekend in Los Angeles at the convention center. There's a couple of guys doing uh, doing Ghostbuster stuff. They're dressed up, and they had a, a poster of Vigo, and uh, so we exchanged some lines from Ghostbusters too. It was great, <laughs> and we all agree <laughs> that Peter awesome. Peter McNichol does not get the credit uh, that he deserves for for playing uh, Johan. Uh, Pohash in that film. Uh, oh, that's right. Yes. Oh, Peter McNichol. He's yeah, it's brilliant. funny. It's, you, know, you know, it's funny because it's like, um, did you ever watch Veep? Yes. Okay, yeah, and he's, he's, he's in that and he's so fucking obnoxious in that. It's so funny because he was like, you know, he's always been this kind of like timid sort of guy and he's just like brutal in that movie um, or in that show. Go back to 1981 and watch Dragon Slayer, and you'll see Peter McNichol at, at his best. Um, this <laughs> epic fantasy film that yeah. I, you know, back when we used to watch HBO at two o'clock in the morning while our parents thought we were, sure, we were not sure. watching cable. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's interesting uh, as we talk about this kind of thing. Uh, LA Comic Con, uh, major, major in-person event. First time they've done it since 2019. San Diego Comic-Con did something a lot smaller this year in person, but they did it over Thanksgiving weekend. Um, Seattle had their uh, Emerald City Con same weekend as L.A. Um, mm. And it, it's it's interesting because everybody's clamoring for live in-person events. And uh, L.A. Comic-Con drew over 90,000 people. It was... Um, it was great to see all these celebrities out. Uh, I worked with, uh, Bruce Campbell for the day. Uh, yeah. And I've been a fan for years. I saw him speak a couple of years ago at the Castro, uh, in San Francisco. He introed evil dead Two and did a Q and a, but I didn't get to meet him. And, uh, I got to meet him this time and, uh, great guy, wonderful guy. They always say, don't meet your heroes. Right. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, I, I have nothing but good things to say about my experience working with Bruce. Uh, Mr. Campbell. Um, I got to spend a few minutes with Giancarlo Esposito, uh, obviously a star of Better Call Saul and uh, Breaking Bad, and now on The Mandalorian. Uh, he's also on The Boys, and as you mentioned, uh, some some earlier things uh, that we mentioned off air. Um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. He was in he was in several early Spike Lee movies, of course. Do the right thing, School Days, Mo Better Blues, fair. and. Uh, just a really, really great. Um, I re- that's kind of how I discovered him, um, and uh, you know, of course, almost like a whole generation, a whole new generation discovered him on Breaking Bad, and uh, you know, talk about a real like evil fuck in that. Yeah, <laughs> plays a great villain. But the thing about plays him, plays a great is, villain. Yeah, and he's not like that. I mean, I, I mean, he. Oh, of course, yeah. you mentioned that you like his work, and he lights right up. And it was it was wonderful to talk to him for a few minutes, and uh, I got to see Zachary Levy, who played uh, Shazam, uh, mm-hmm. and also starred on Chuck. Uh, it was Nichelle Nichols of Star Trek fame, Lieutenant Uhura, her last public appearance. 
they had a huge mm. Star Trek experience there. Um, and then, uh, you know, they did, uh, they had a lot of, uh, voiceover actors and esports and, uh, a lot of that kind of thing. But, uh, um, you know, Benedict Wong was there. If you're familiar mm-hmm. with uh, with some of the stuff that he's done with uh, Doctor Strange and some of the rest of the Marvel Universe, um, so yeah, it uh, it was a great event. Had a lot of fun. Uh, I, I've only been to a couple of these comic book conventions. I actually was on a panel f- a few years ago at San Francisco Comic Con, which is actually held in Oakland. Don't ask. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was there to promote my books and talk about fiction writing. And um, so it, um, it was a fun event and, you know, pop culture again is, is in the limelight. Um, we uh, we're talking off air about some of the, the upcoming projects. Uh, some folks are working on Mike Flanagan, who, who recently, um, you know, had a, had a great series. Uh, God, why can't I remember the damn name of it? Uh, Midnight Mass, um, a great yep. uh, vampire series. Um, he's going to be um, adapting the fall of the House of Usher into a, a limited series, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, one of my uh, favorite ghost stories um, from uh, the 60s and 70s. Uh, yep. And then, uh, so that'll be fun. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention to you before we get into the Fall River stuff. So... I have it recorded. I haven't watched it. They've just put it on Turner Classic Movies. But Guillermo del Toro has reimagined the uh, film noir Nightmare Alley. And Kate Blanchett is in it, and uh, along with Bradley Cooper and uh, all-star cast. And I'm really, really wanting to go see that in a theater. Uh, I just recorded the original film noir off of uh, TCM. Look, I've never seen it as much as I like film noir. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, it's really interesting when you see somebody who does superhero films, does horror films, um, and, uh, you know, gets into uh, reimagining a film noir. And I just watched L.A. Confidential again last night, which is a, a fantastic neo-noir film. Sure, uh, yeah. You know, and uh, it's it's great that um, noir uh, keeps finding new evangelists. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm a huge fan of LA Confidential, and I think it was, you know, I remember it, that whole like mid to late 90s, almost like resurgence in like serious, these young film, well, young filmmaker Curtis Hansen wasn't really that young when he made it, but that was around the time when Cohen brothers were getting really big and Tarantino and David Fincher and all these people. And I remember LA Confidential was part of that whole sort of like late 90s, almost like a return to like sort of classic cinema. And uh, the thing about that movie is that I, I really liked it so much. And and it, it didn't seem like that that kind of thing was like recreated ever again. It's not like, you know, when Pulp Fiction came out, everybody tried to make another Pulp Fiction. And with L.A. Confidential, it was sort of like almost like stands alone. And I was really looking for kind of like a resurgence of sort of film noir. And I don't think we really got it, at least not to that level, because that movie was just so it just seemed like it was like the perfect movie in so many ways. You know, it was just so well done. And it really sort of like evoked that era uh, and that time frame where it takes place and in in how Hollywood in like the forties, I think, right? Is yeah. that when it's supposed to take place? It's just so beautifully done. I just kind of going off on a tangent with this, but it's just like you brought up LA Confidential. It's like, God, I haven't seen that movie in years and I forgot how fucking great it is. Right, it me really too. I, I'd yeah. seen it once all the way through before, right? And it evokes even uh, that flavor of Chinatown. 
right? Which exactly, is which is exactly. done, it's, you know, 25, 30 years earlier exactly, uh, with Jack yeah, Nicholson, yeah, def- right? Definitely, definitely a Chinatown vibe because both of those movies were evoking that time frame. I mean, the two movies mm-hmm. were very far apart, but they were both sort of paying tribute to like early Hollywood and film noir and um, and both amazing movies in their own right. I mean, I wouldn't say one is better. Well, maybe Chinatown's better. I don't know. Whatever. They're both fantastic. But um, yeah, and uh, what a cast too. Yeah. You know, um, uh, you, know you had uh, what's a guy yeah. Pierce who right you know, um, didn't really you know, and then uh, Russell the Crowe. Uh, and, Russell Crowe, really early role for Russell Crowe. Yep. Uh, Kim D- Basinger, Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito. Danny, yep. 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 Um, just Kevin a, Spacey, just a, but we don't want to talk about him because he's a creep. Um, Kevin, yeah, Kevin Spacey before he kind of, you know, but he's really be, good, right? He's really yeah, good that's in the that. Thing, it's it's one of these things where it's just like, I, you know, the whole like separating the art from the artist, and can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you can you still enjoy the work of someone who turned out to be a complete asshole? And it's like, you know what? I'm sorry, but. Kevin Spacey made some really good fucking movies. He's I'm the gonna... one I have the most trouble with yeah, out of everybody yeah. from Michael Jackson to, to God knows yeah. who else. He's the one I have the most trouble Polanski. with. I, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I, I, yeah. I'll go back and I'll watch the ninth gate and I have to forget that Polanski made that film or even Rosemary's yeah. baby. Yeah. Right. It's like, yeah. Yeah. you know, but um, yeah, but I mean like, remember like in the nineties when you had, LA Confidential and Usual Suspects yes. and Seven. And it's just yes. like he was just like one after another mm-hmm. after another. And and uh you know, and that's another one. Seven was one of those yeah. one of those movies that was just sort of like I don't know if you would call that film noir. That was more just like almost like straight horror in a lot of ways. I don't know what you would call that. Um it is a noir. It has a noir. It's genre bending, it. right? I mean you can't you yeah. can't categorize that. And you know, we get I, I, I mean, had a, a conversation a, with a with a fellow published author about you know genres and trying to pigeonhole stuff i you know you know seven was was just a a fantastic movie i don't care what you call it but you know it's funny starting with the late 80s even you started seeing film noir elements in in things that weren't film noir like blade runner blade runner is a straight neo-noir film even though it's science fiction it's based on a philip k dick uh novel um You know, so starting in the late '80s, you start seeing a lot of film noir elements uh, brought mm-hmm. forward, and and takes you to uh, L.A. Confidential. But then after that, it's like, where did it go? Yeah. Well, I think it's. I think it was still. You'd still see it in 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 movies. It's just that I don't think it had quite the exposure that it had because like it was just. It's weird when you think about. Like I said, the the nineties there was just this thing, and I think that there was a lot of. I mean, look at like the Coen Brothers. I mean, like Blood Simple. I mean, that's noir, and all these directors were sort of like you know dipping into these. Um, these genres that they sort of maybe they sort of grew up with, you know, and I think that like um, you could say that, you know, Curtis Hansen made LA Confidential because he was such a fan of Chinatown or, uh, you know, Tarantino, Fair. of course, was Tarantino was just like so, you know, he's someone who like wears his influences on his sleeve. I mean, it's just like he was so into all these like 70s movies and it's all over the stuff that he does now. And, and that's the thing is that you, I think in the 90s, that was the first era where you had a lot of, um, a lot of these directors who were basically making movies that were paying tribute to the stuff that they grew up with. I think that's probably what a lot of that was. But no, I think I that's we- accurate. I, th- I think yeah. that's very accurate. And and even Peter Jackson, right? When he did King Kong in two thousand five, you know, mm-hmm. even though King Kong the original was a nineteen thirty three film, Peter Jackson says that's the film that made him want to be a filmmaker. 
Yeah. So, right. you know, you finally start to see the, the folks like Peter Jackson be able to create their own effects companies and to be able yeah. to do the effects the way they want to do them. Same thing with George Lucas, right? That's why it took him so long to get to, get to the prequel films because he had to wait for the technology to catch up with his vision. But, yeah. you know, the thing with noir is, you know, there's a lot of these films from, from the 40s and 50s that um, definitely uh, have a huge influence on a lot of filmmakers. And, you know, it goes beyond that, you know, just that straight damsel in distress, uh, femme fatale, uh, you know, tortured cop story. And like you said, yeah. L.A. Confidential is almost a perfect film from James Cromwell on down, right? And even Danny oh, DeVito right. fits right in. Well, Dan, yeah, because he plays the the gossip columnist yep. or whatever. The and tabloid. It's, it's, they needed that. They needed that character, and then he fit the yeah. bill for it. And and I forgot that Cromwell's in that. Damn, he's good. He's yeah. good in that movie. Yeah, um, and DeVito, it's a nuanced performance for him. He's not yeah. over the top like he was in in the Romancing the Stone films or anything else he right. did after that. Um, right. He's he fits right in. Everybody's pitch perfect in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, Agreed. And, yeah, and and uh, you know, I st- it's kind of funny. I, it was coming on, and I stayed up late to watch it. And I just like you, I'd forgotten how good that film was. And yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of other uh, neo noir films that have come out in the last you know say thirty years or so. Um, but that one really really jumps out at me. Um, and uh, us being film noir uh, fans, you know, as far as TV shows, I, I've got to get back to it. I got to go back and and finish it. I got to watch Bosch. Bosch is is very much a neo noir uh, mm-hmm. series, uh, and I know you're a fan of the books and and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The books, um, uh, the books I like a lot, and I've kind of gotten over the last few years gotten out of a lot of like genre fiction a lot of like crime stuff but but Connolly is one of those where i i michael Connolly, I, I will still read those um not necessarily every one that he makes but i will still read them because they're just they're good solid detective novels that are sort of reminiscent of like raymond chandler and that sort of classic style sure um and 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 you know the bosch books are probably the best of the books that he did is in my opinion and that's why i was so happy that not only did this end up making its way into a TV series, but it was one that is done really well. And, you know, you had Titus Welliver, who I'm sorry. I mean, there have been so many sort of like people online before the long before the Bosch series came out, Michael Connolly fans were, there was a constant point of discussion. Like if they ever made Bosch into a movie or a TV show, who would they cast? And everybody's thrown out names. And I don't know if anybody ever mentioned Titus Welliver, but he's perfect in it. I mean, he really is. You know, it, it's it's really kind of funny. We always end up going down these odd rabbit holes on this on this show, but we end up talking about film noir. Mm-hmm. And before I get into the next thing, you know, I've got to do this again. You're listening to the Get the Knack <laughs> podcast with Jerry Knack. I thought you were going to say something like, I have a confession. No, God, like- no, 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 no. But but I'm going to, it's funny. I'm joined by my good friend, Chris Ingalls from Boston, Massachusetts. But here's the thing. I do want to, so there's always a through line in these fucking shows, right? So right. I watched a documentary on Dashiell Hammett, who mm-hmm. obviously wrote um, The Maltese Falcon which mm-hmm. is considered yep. the progenitor of neo-noir, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, what a fuck nut that guy was. Oh, really? Oh, God. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, Jesus. You know, I mean, you know, we talk about Hemingway and 
you know, we talk about the lost generation and and uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and all those all those writers that that mm. ended up inspiring the Beats eventually, right? So, but this guy thought he was some neo noir detail. He was like James Bond before James Bond. He he really was a, a freaking ass clown, um, and eventually just forgets how to write. And uh, you know, the funny thing about it is kind of the the progenitor of, of noir as we know it, when we look at it as a literary genre that leads to the films. Oh my God. Just womanizing, um, you know, that whole thing and, and just eventually forgets how to write. And, and it's really a tragic story of what happens. We consider, you know, Dashiell Hammett, one of the, the great writers of the first half of the 20th century. Um, and he's just, you know, this freaking wackaloon. Um, yeah. You know, but it does, you know, lead to the Mickey Spillanes of the world. It leads to, you know, the creation of the Mike Hammer character. And, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's influenced by everybody, right? And then, again, we get, we get to LA Confidential and all that, and that, which leads, you can't tell me Michael Connelly doesn't, you know, create Bosch based on, you know, this through line all the way back to Dashiell Hammett. Oh sure, yeah, and he and he fully acknowledges those influences, and and I think another thing that um, another thing that sort of resulted in in what he does is, um, but before he was a novelist, he was a crime reporter, yeah, and that definitely comes through because you get a lot of the sort of like the, the really good crime scene details and and the inner workings of of the police department, and that's because he wasn't a cop, but he was a reporter, and he was around that all the time, and you mm-hmm. can tell. And uh, so, you know, kind of a combination of being this sort of like uh, noir, uh, this sort of like, um, you know, uh, crime noir novelist fan and a, 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 a crime beat reporter. That's like the perfect combination if you want to be a good mystery novelist. You know sure. I mean? it's just so, so, and, and, and it's, you know, like I said, I think he's, I think he's terrific. I think in terms of like modern day crime novels, I mean, he's, he's the best around in my opinion. Gotcha. And, and here's the other thing too. When you think about it, we were just talking about how noir has influenced all these different films. During the Halloween season, you know, I, I dive into my favorite horror films during during October. And I tell you what, mm-hmm. I revisited Angel Heart. And oh, I, I can talk about that movie for days. Right, go ahead. right. But talk about the noir. In, it is a straight yeah. horror noir film. Sure. With, that, with 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 some supernatural, absolutely one hundred percent right. When you when yeah. you get De Niro playing the devil and you you've got Mickey Rourke. Spoiler alert! Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, okay. His name is Louis Cipher. I know, I know. You got to kind of if you haven't figured. I mean, it's a little too was, on the nose, Chris. Yeah, yeah, I I was I was I was in high school when I first saw that movie, so you have to forgive me for not picking up on it right away. But yeah, it is kind of an obvious. <laughs> I saw that movie. I saw that movie in the theater twice. In one week. What That's a how much fucking I love amazing film. And, and it's go back. so good. Isn't it though? You go back it's and watch so it, you're like, you know, it's, and you, it's, it still holds up. Yeah, and you got up. Lisa Bonet and you get the whole voodoo thing and you, you yep. get this whole yep. sell your soul to the devil. I mean, it's Faust, yep. it's noir, it's it's yep. all these different things. Johnny Favorite and yep. you know, the yep. Yep. the yep. war and oh my god, and, and it's just a victim, someone his own age. Yeah, right? 
the, the the thing the thing that's interesting about that movie is that it, it you know if you remember when it first came out there was so much controversy around it because Lisa Bonet who was this, Cosby Show the Cosby Show she was that she was this you supposed know, this, to be chaste and innocent and all exactly. this shit and, and she is in this like this like completely batshit crazy sex scene with Mickey Rourke and of course everyone's like oh did you see the movie about Lisa Bonet having sex and it's like eh, it's not what the movie's about I mean <laughs> it's I mean. It's certainly an intense scene in the movie. Yes, but it's it not, is. Oh, but, I know. It's it's interesting because <sighs> it's a detective story. It's a horror story. It's a right. supernatural right. thing. It's it's yeah. all these different things all wrapped into one. But it, and it's it's one of those movies where you remember why Mickey Rourke was so oh. um, idolized as as an actor because as an actor he like is. That that's like peak Rourke right there. I mean, he was so good. And you look at the scenes. There's only like two or three scenes of him and, and De Niro together, but they're yeah. so good because yeah. it's just like it's like the 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 you know the veteran actor and the young like you know genius like just in a scene together. And it's kind of like you know it's like people talk about like in Heat with De Niro, you know the scene with De Niro and and Pacino and it's like you know where you get these two amazing actors together and it's just like brilliant you can't keep your eyes off the screen but but the 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 suspense and the mystery and the, the sort of whole creepiness of that movie it's just perfect yeah and again Such a spoil, good movie. spoiler alert i mean it is a 30 year old film or whatever it is you, yeah. you know that there's that naivete that that uh, Mickey Rourke brings to it that that you're like maybe he's not Johnny favorite maybe he's right. not maybe it's you know you start putting the clue because you put the clues together as he puts the clues together right exactly. it's it, it's it's like you're putting the the you're the detective right you're following along yep. with him and yep. and yep. and you're hoping against hope that as you start to understand that who he really is you're like maybe not yep. and they're like oh shit. Um, and he's got a he, and he's got a thing about chickens, it, right? <laughs> the whole thing with chickens, and then the, the chicken foot. You talk too much, and oh my god, and then the whole voodoo thing, and oh yeah. I mean, first of all, never mind the sex scene with Lisa Bonet with him. I mean, the whole thing with her and the chickens and the and the yep, voodoo yep. ritual and everything else out right, the weeds. Right, and, right, right, right. You know, if you've ever spent any time in Louisiana, you know this shit is real, and people believe it. Yep. And you're like, there's just so many great elements. I mean, it's kind of like you know when you watch LA Confidential, you're like, oh, this shit could happen. Right, I mean, yeah, people yeah. getting framed with, you know, especially in a time when everybody was was homophobic and and, and you know everybody's looking for dirt on everybody else. It, it's so believable, right? And that's that's yeah. a great thing about that that film. And uh, <clears throat> you know, I digress uh, again. We go down a rabbit hole, but you know, noir is such an interesting subject, and uh, you know, obviously Turner Classic Movies, and I've fallen off the wagon with it, but you know, with with Eddie Muller and Noir Alley and. You know, the fact that there are people out there that, that keep this genre alive, not only from a historical standpoint, but also uh, in the influence of film, right. it, it, it makes me very, very happy. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about um, was this other documentary that I watched. Since we're on the topic of documentaries tonight. Yep. So there's a documentary about Fall River, Massachusetts, 1979 to 1980, about some murders that took place. And the documentary comes right out and says, oh, there's the satanic murders of whatever. And what I didn't realize and understand was that Fall River is this this hotbed of, 
of prostitution and crime and all kinds of drugs and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, about an hour outside of Boston, your your neck of the woods. And uh, the reason I mention it is because it is is your neck of the woods. But also, you recall, and I know you spent part of your childhood out of the country, but you know, it, it comes up every so often. You know, the satanic panic. Right, everybody's yep. like, "Oh, everything's a satanic ritual." They're they're murdering people, or they're listening to records backwards, and and all this stuff. And and basically, what I get out of the whole documentary is um, a couple of women were murdered ritually, like serial killer style, and they wanted to to blame it on this satanic ritual and satanists and mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And basically, the bottom line was they were fitting uh, fitting the local pimp up to. Uh, to take him down and, and send him up the river. The poor guy's in jail probably uh, 40 years for a crime he never committed. Wow. And, and, and the, it is. And, and there was a young lady who was 16, 17 years old, and she's wrapped up in the whole thing, and, and she spent a lot of time in prison as well. And, and she did apparently commit one murder, but it was one of those, you know, just, you know, crime of passion, violence, you know, spur of the moment kind of things. But they had this guy... And I'm not even going to get into names because I don't remember any of them from the, the show. But they had this guy. He was the local local creep, right? And a lot of women, or actually young girls, as young as 12, were accusing him of all kinds of heinous things. And the police barely looked at him for these particular crimes. And so they had the guy right there. You know, his house was equidistant from the two girls that were murdered mm-hmm. uh, on either side of him. And uh, they end up, you know, using this whole thing as an excuse to uh, take the local pimp uh, that nobody liked um, and fit him up and and send him up the river. While even though the guy who did it or probably did it died in prison for other things that he was involved in, but not this Mm -hmm. particular thing. I I just find it really interesting. You know, I was learning about a place I didn't know anything about, Fall River. Um and uh, in, a, in a period of time, I just found it really interesting that that yeah. place on Earth was, uh, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night, you know, the ladies of the night were, were prowling the streets. And this is where mm-hmm. you went for that kind of thing. I was uh, I was stunned. But yeah, um, it's it started with a, a body that was discovered under, under the bleachers at a, at a high school football field. And uh, but, um, you know, that they. They had all the evidence in the world um, right. that it wasn't this one thing, and they they kept saying, "Oh yeah, it's it's Satanism, it's satanic," you know. And right? Like, no, no, it wasn't. You guys are all <laughs> idiots. You know? Yes. And it was a documentarian that figured it all out, right? I mean, right. right. You know, and I just kept thinking of the movie um, Insidious uh, with. Uh, with uh, Ethan Hawke, uh, which I absolutely love the film. And, you know, he's a true crime writer and he moves into the house where one of the crimes was committed. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a super, supernatural thing, but I just kept thinking, okay. of, thinking of that the whole time. It's like... He figured it out. Yeah, right? Not in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, not in, a, not in a good way. But, uh, but yeah, I just, I just found it really, really fascinating. And they're trying to get the guy, the one guy, the, the pimp, uh, a new new trial and, uh, and and try to get the guy out of jail after after forty years and the reason I mention it is because it, it seems like around the country there seems to be this uh, this groundswell of support to get people out of prison uh, for crimes they didn't commit 
and uh, you know, which I think is a great thing. However, you know, in some places, you know, they're they're bound and determined to keep some of these folks in prison for shit they didn't do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. This, 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 for some strange reason, and I guess it's kind of related, but this reminds me that what you just said reminds me of talking about film noir and talking about kind of movies that have sort of become forgotten over the years. There was a movie that came out in 1983 starring Michael Douglas and Hal Holbrook called The Star Chamber. Did you yep. ever hear about this? I movie? remember that movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, interesting. It was one of those movies that, like, I saw it when I was on HBO, and I'm like, oh, this is really good. And I ended up watching it, like, five times because it was on HBO, you know, the whole month. Um, interesting movie about this, you know, uh, Michael Douglas plays this judge in Southern California, and he's frustrated because he has to throw out cases on technicalities, even though he knows that people are guilty. Hal Holbrook is, like, his mentor, and he says, hey, kid, there's this secret society of judges that I belong to where we, we, we decide if people are guilty or innocent. And then we hire an assassin to go out and kill them. And then, of course, everything goes completely wrong because they end up going after this guy who actually didn't do the crime and, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So it's sort of like the vigilante film goes wrong. But it's actually a great noir film. When, you, when if you oh. if you you know if you remember it, but it's it's um one of those movies that was sort of forgotten. You know, it was it was made in I think eighty three. They've been talking about remaking it, and I kind of hope they don't because. You know how remakes are, you know, never, not always a good thing. Um, yeah, they, sometimes they, they are. a lot of stuff they should just leave the fuck alone. Well, um, I think that, that what you said about the Ghostbusters thing, though, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of that has been fairly well done. I think you just said that the one that you just saw was really good. But the, and the one, the one with, with Melissa McCarthy um, is more, you know, well-intentioned tribute like a love letter yeah it's an know? homage right it's, it's an uh, homage yeah yeah and yeah. you know even bill murray and, and annie potts uh you know uh have roles and and dan Aykroyd's in it but they're not their is, their original is there any characters. Hudson in it? Mm, yes for he has a, a cameo at the end um okay. but they're not their original <laughs> characters that's right? interesting yeah that's actually so, kind of an that's kind of a cool twist actually yeah, and you know they they have cameos in it, and you know um, Annie Potts delivers the the whole "What do you want?" You know, um, <laughs> you know, but it's a fun film, right? Leslie Jones of Saturday Night Live fame, she's sure, in it, and sure, sure. you know, uh, it's it's an interesting Kristen Wiig, yeah, you know, from my hometown, Brighton High School, uh, Rochester, New York. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, but again, it's not considered canon. And right. you, it's taken. And that's okay. And that's okay. Absolutely okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and again, we go back to what we talked about earlier. I don't understand the hate for it, but you you get to this one, and you got Finn Wolfhard, who's in fuck everything right now. When you yeah. you want some su- supernatural shit, you get Finn Wolfhard. He's in. He's a stra- He's a Stranger Things guy. Yes, and he was also in it, Chapter One and Two. And right. 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 So. There's Stephen King. Um, we did it. Yes, we did. We we it took the whole freaking show to get there, but um, uh, you know it's uh it's really interesting because um, you know as what I I consider if it wasn't for the damn special effects, I think Ghostbusters is is a perfect film. It's just the special effects don't hold up today. The the original. Yes, the 1984 yeah. film. Um, and but. You know the way they incorporate Harold Ramis in this new film is is 
pretty freaking good. And it's not one of those things like in the Star Wars films where you have CGI Carrie Fisher and it's and it's very weird looking, or even Peter Cushing, right, who's playing Grand Moff Tarkin. It, yep. It's not it's not bad. It's not badly done. And the great brilliant thing about it is, spoiler alert, he doesn't talk. Who doesn't talk? Harold Ramis. Oh, okay. Spangler, Egon. He doesn't talk. <laughs> He, and and the way, but the way you're you're hoping, you're like, don't talk, don't talk, don't talk, shut up, just don't say it because it's going to ruin it. Yeah, right. it's going to ruin them all. And, and and I I just think of all the things where they've they've brought back dead people in these films in the last ten years. This mm. is the best way I've seen it done. Sure, yeah, right? that makes sense. Yeah. So anyway. We've got all kinds of stuff. I, I'm so bad at reading this year. I've I've hardly read anything. I've read like six, seven, eight books. I'm still in the middle of yeah. uh, My Heart is a Chainsaw by uh, Stephen Graham Jones, who I think is mm-hmm. is this fantastic voice in horror right now uh, when it comes to literature. Um, and uh, it, speaking of homages, it's an homage to, to slasher films. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I'm more than halfway through it. It's it's an excellent book. It's My lack of finishing it has nothing to do with the quality of the writing or the book. It's it's just my dumbass hasn't finished it yet. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, and, and I, I, I know the feeling. Yep. I read Stephen yep. King's Billy Summers uh, a couple of months ago. Excellent book. No supernatural okay. anything um, except the yeah, overlook. it's more like a detective story, right? Yep. Yep, uh, you know, hitman kind of thing. Um, the uh, Overlook Hotel in Colorado has a cameo appearance in the book, um, so there's a slight reference to oogity boogities, but but that's not what yep. it's about. Um, so I read that excellent, excellent uh, book, and uh, I really enjoyed it. As far as Stephen King stories go, um, next year uh, we're supposed to get a Salem's Lot. Uh, theatrical release so i'm looking forward to that that should be interesting um another one yeah i mean we've never had a theatrical salem's lot it was oh, a okay. made so for the, tv miniseries the in 1979 the david soul one was a miniseries and didn't yes. they do another miniseries like, yeah with, like, like with rob lowe or yes something, or? and i did garbage um yeah nobody right. likes that one that's too um, bad because it's a good it's a good book yeah, it's a fantastic book. It's one of my favorite Stephen King books. It's his one straight vampire novel. Um, yeah. So back to epics. Adrian Brody stars in Chapelweight, which is the prequel to the novel Salem's Lot, and it's set in like the eighteen hundreds, um, and it's based on the Jerusalem's Lot short story in yep. Night Shift, and people don't realize or forget that there's also a sequel in night shift very very it's more illusion uh than straight sequel but it's something called one for the road in the night shift collection yes yeah which i I, which i read i don't know maybe 15 years ago so i I honestly don't remember all the stories but obviously i have read it i just reread it recently um so that's why it's kind of fresh in my mind um Night Shift is is the first thing I ever read by Stephen King, um, okay. and I read it when I was in 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 the Navy before you and I met. Um, uh-huh. 
and uh, you know, I just happened to pick up a copy somewhere and and read it, and and it's a brilliant collection of short stories. I think Stephen King's short yeah. stories are, are better than his than most of his novels. I, I tend to agree with you on that. I, I mean, it, it varies a little bit, but I'm 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 thinking about some of his short story collections, and I think that they're you know, and some of the later ones are, are get a little you know, like I don't know if you ever read Just After Sunset, but that's a really good short story collection that he did maybe ten years ago, and I think that the short stories in the novel tend to maybe be more my speed because I think that, I don't know, I have a hard time getting through his really long books. The only one that I read of his that was really long was It, which I loved. Mm -hmm. But um, I've tried... And eventually, I think eventually I'll finish The Stand, but I've tried to read it. And it's just like, I get to a point where it's just like, I don't know if I want to spend three more weeks with these characters. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> I it's, do. it's, you know, and I think that, like I said, I think that they're, the books are, and I think eventually, whenever I do end up reading, I mean, the complete uncut version, it's like 1,400 pages. It's like three books. I know, and, I just, and I it know. was like thirteen hundred pages or whatever, and I it read was, that it one. It was about, I think it was about eleven hundred, and yeah, I think it took me three weeks. I, yeah, it took me about a month, and I gotta say, it's probably the longest novel I've ever read. Uh, I would I, say definitely. Yeah, I, I would agree. And Needful Things isn't exactly short either. It's like six hundred. Um, Sleeping yeah. Beauties isn't short. I read that one um, not that long ago. Um, eleven twenty two sixty three is pretty long too. But I gotta tell you. That's like top five king for me. That's wow. one of my favorites. Such yeah. a good book. I'll get there eventually as I, I read everything he's ever written. It's um, it's good. It's it's solid. Um, just don't watch the Hulu miniseries because that was pretty bad. Got it. Got <laughs> I it. started to watch it and I'm like, yeah, it sucks. So, um, yeah. So I'm, uh, you know, I, I read, uh, finally read Colorado Kid not that long ago. So I've read all three of the Hard Case Crime books. Um, okay. I really liked Later. I read later in one sitting. Uh, Joyland is is pretty good as well. Colorado Kid's probably my least favorite of the three, and I, I love it when people on these Facebook groups sit there and go, "Oh yeah, that's what the TV series Haven's based on." Oh no 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 no! It, it <laughs> loosely inspired by. Yeah. There's nothing in Haven that looks anything like Colorado Kid. Um, but, uh, it, it's what, what I like about Colorado kid is if you want a primer in Stephen King's main, read that first. Okay. And, and that one will, will give you a flavor of the language, the lore, um, mm-hmm. you know, the us versus them kind of thing, or you're not right, from right. here kind of right. thing. Um, and, and then you can, you can understand the rest of, of Stephen King stuff. Um, and, and just the setting, right? Um, you know, I read If It Bleeds not that long ago, which is a, a four novella collection. Uh, three, uh, what was that? Three of the four stories are brilliant. One of them I didn't get because uh, okay. it's written in reverse order. And I'm like, I, I have a real problem with stuff that's nonlinear. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's why I don't like time travel shit. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, okay. but, but yeah. So as far as what, I've been watching on television, uh, streaming stuff. I went back and I binge watched Fargo, all four seasons of it. It's freaking brilliant ass television. Um, I, I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, go watch it. If you have, revisit it. Um, it's just, I mean, all all the seasons, everything's all tied together. There are many through lines. Uh, the acting's fantastic. Um so I did that recently. I've been watching a French show on Netflix called Marianne. And 
Uh, it's about a witch. It's about a writer. Uh, you know, I love horror stories about writers. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I had started it and abandoned it, and now I've come back to it. Uh, it's really, really good. So I recommend that on Netflix. Uh, if you get a chance, watch Marianne. If you want something dark, creepy, and, you know, it has its moments. It has its jump scares, but it also has, uh, you know, some other stuff. Uh, and that's on Netflix? That's on Netflix. Yep. Okay. And, and again, I, you know, I, I think part of it was I tried to watch it dubbed, and now I'm watching it subtitled. I prefer it subtitled. Yeah, I mean, I think dubbed is, uh, that's never a good thing. Um, I, I No. It's just, it's, I don't know, there's something weird about it. And, you, you lose know, the never, emotion. You lose the emotion, yeah. And I, you know, I've never had a problem with subtitles. I've never minded them. Um, so, you know, yeah. I'm trying to think if I saw something. I think I remember the first time I saw Das Boot, I saw it dubbed, and it was just like, oh, God. Das Boot. Das Boot. <laughs> is this, um, so is this um, lured back to her hometown? A famous horror writer discovers that the evil spirit yep. who plagues her dreams. That's it. Okay. Yep, okay. you got to check that out. It's real. It's, it's my, actually really. You got to. It, it's it, in the queue. Yep, you got to. It, it takes a, a little bit to catch, but yeah, it's. Um, it really. It, it gets its stride like in the middle, um, and uh, okay. I'm, I'm getting toward the end on it. And uh, it's yeah. interesting. I'm. 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 I'm uh, I'm on Netflix right now, and then I think it's got like other things that are related to it, and it's probably in Midnight Mass is here, yep. and then there's something called Haunted, which I've never seen. There's a lot of interesting stuff here that looks very horror-ish um, that I haven't uh, looked at. That what was that was that the what was the was it Haunting of Hill House was was a series they made. Yes, a, that was Mike Flanagan. Yeah, that was yeah. that was the guy who did Midnight Mass. Was that good? Uh, I liked Haunting of Hill House. I really did. Yeah, okay. um, it took. It's a slow burn that finally gets you somewhere. Um, the last couple of episodes, you're just like, "Oh shit!" So yeah, I mean, you you gotta you gotta wait for the build. You gotta go through the build up, but the payoff is so worth it. Um, okay, good to know. I just watched the power of the dog and the and and I gotta say, two of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life star kirsten dunst okay and i like kirsten dunst going yeah. all the way back to interview with a vampire and the mm -hmm. spider-man movies and everything else i've seen her in the power of the dog as jesse plemons which is kirsten dunst i don't know if they're married or not but jesse plemons and kirsten dunst are a thing ever yep. since ever since fargo uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is in this, and uh, Cody Smith McPhee, who is in uh, the American version of Let the Right One In, which is Let Me In, which is mm -hmm. one of my favorite uh, vampire films, especially of, of recent memory. Um, it's a terrible fucking movie. It is a slow burn to nowhere. Even even when you get it, even when you 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 understand what's going on, it's a mm -hmm. terrible fucking movie. It's really? awful. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, it won all these awards, and you know, of course, you know, you you win all these film festival awards, and everybody thinks it's great. And I'm like, looking at, I'm watching a film, and I just kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Mm -hmm. and you're like, oh my god, that's what this is about, really? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're like, that's Interesting. it. It's almost like watching Blair Witch Project. You get to the end, you're like, that's it. 
Oh yeah, I mean, I <laughs> Blair Witch Project was such a letdown for me because there Seriously. was so much. There was so much. I mean, there was so much hype behind it, and it's easy to look back on it now, like twenty something years later, because it's like it's been so par- it's been parodied, it's been everything, and it's just like there's it's it's completely lost any kind of impact that it had at the time. But at the time, there there was such a it was so much buzz about it. I mean, you brilliant marketing. The marketing was amazing, and then. I remember, and maybe it's because I didn't see it right away. Like I saw it maybe a year after it came out. I think I rented it or something like that. And I just remember thinking, Mm -hmm. I mean, interesting idea, but oh God, maybe I've just become desensitized or whatever. But it was just like, it was, it was like my, my, my reaction was, that's it. That was my exact same reaction. So I remember Angie, when we were dating, she she rented like a stack of movies from Blockbuster one Friday or Saturday night. It was like, yeah, let's watch movies. Let's watch scary movies. That's what we're going to do. Pop popcorn, and that's what we're going to do. And we watched Blair Witch, and both of us looked at each other at the end of the film, and we're like, that's it? Yeah. Yeah. We're like, eh. It's like Bird Box. I don't know if you watched Bird Box with Sandra Bullock. I didn't watch it, but I re- it was one of those things where I, so many people were talking about it that I just got sick of it. I'm like, Thank I'm going to watch this. I watched nobody it. will shut up about it. Right. And I watched it and I was like, okay, that's what everybody's yeah. talking about. I got to see the oogity boogity. I'm sorry. I got to see the monster. You can't, you know, yeah. you can't allude to it. You can't. You know, uh, well, I mean, I I don't particularly mind if they don't show it. It's just I just remember it was so over, it was so overhyped and overwrought. Turned me off of it. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I yeah. I saw a Quiet Place too, and that wasn't terrible. You know, speaking of this kind of thing, as as we wind down uh, the show for tonight, I watched the new Candyman, right? And it it cracked me up. Um, one of my badges of honor on Twitter is that Tony Todd follows me, right? And I, you know, I love Tony Todd. He's he's a horror movie icon. He is, he is he's one of the the godfathers of horror. And yep, all these people when the new Candyman came out, it's too woke. I'm like, did you not fucking get the original? <laughs> did you not watch the? Shut the fuck up. Seriously, did you not get it? Because obviously you don't. I'm like, are yeah. you kidding me? I'm like, Jesus Christ. It's it's racism at its core. Yeah. And you have to find new imaginative ways to tell these stories. And uh, it was entertaining. It was, I, I can't say it was scary because I, I'm so familiar with the story, right? I've seen the original Candyman and its sequels multiple times. And, and their Candyman, the original, is one of my favorite horror films of all time. It is on my top 100 list. And... You know, Tony Todd is is this this horror movie icon. He's one of the people yep. they they interview for for horror noir, the documentary series about uh, people of color, uh, black black folks in in horror film. Um, and if you if you say this film is too woke, then then you just you just didn't get it. Yeah, interesting though. It, it's it, in in in, in a, I, um, real quick, I, I wanted to ask you, and I think we talked about this before, before, and this is sort of related in a couple of different ways. Um, you've you've seen Lovecraft Country? I have. Yeah, yeah. I started to watch it, and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to continue watching it because I wasn't really sure if I was going to enjoy it. I thought it was interesting, but I wasn't really sure if it was like worth it to devote more time to it. I have some fundamental issues with this program and 
first of all, the concept is spectacular. The the mm-hmm. idea is wonderful. It's the execution, yeah. right? So, you know, as you know, huge H.P. Lovecraft fan. Uh, yep. I, you know, another one where you got to separate the artist from the art. Uh, yep. There's a yep. great yep. documentary on Amazon Prime called Fear of the Unknown, and Guillermo del Toro and Neil Gaiman and and some other folks are, are part of this documentary. And, and you get to the point about how problematic H.P. Lovecraft is, because here's an anti-Semite who married a Jewish woman. Don't ask me to explain that because I don't fucking know. Yeah. Um, but you know, the guy's xenophobic, uh, and and you know, a lot of a lot of his contemporaries didn't agree with his views. Mm-hmm. So so you you take HP Lovecraft uh, and you take Lovecraft Country, which is this this anti racist answer to him. And mm-hmm. I really, really like the concept and the idea, and it got nominated for a bunch of Emmys. But then it was canceled yeah. after one season because mm-hmm. it was all over the place. It There was right. no through line. There was mm-hmm. no point A to point B. There was no linear storytelling. And I just, you know, as much as I would like my own, uh, at my own beck and call train Shogoth to do my bidding and, and, and vanquish my enemies for me, um, it, it just... I I had so many issues with this show. I wanted to like it, um, and Courtney B. Vance is in it, and they 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 pop him off way too early. Um, and Michael K. Williams is in it too. Right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, rest in peace for him as well. Uh, gone way yeah, too course. way too young. Um, yeah. Brilliant Boardwalk Empire, Chalky White. Um, oh God, yeah, yeah. Talk about something else that's kind of got a noir feel to it. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Right. So. Um, I wanted to like it. I just found it to be all over the place. Interesting. Okay. I mean, it's worth watching the season yeah. just to see what I it's about. It Especially yeah. if it's only one season. And right. It's like, it's, it's just, there's not that much of a commitment, you know? Exactly. And, you know, again, you know, if you like HP Lovecraft stories, if you like cosmic horror, if you like all that stuff and, and you like it and you want to look at it through a, a today's lens, it's worth yeah. the watch, right? I've actually thought about going back and giving it another shot and saying, okay, okay, what did I miss? Why am I, you know? Um, and it, it has some noir elements to it, right? Mm. It has some of that because of the time period. It's the 50s. It's, you know, sure. it, it's that green book that because that's the whole idea behind it, right? Um, they're, uh, they're, they're compiling things for the, the guide for, for uh, uh, people of color to travel, um, on the back road, yep. so they, you mm-hmm. know, right. So there's there's a lot of that element, and yep, yep, you know. But there's, there's yeah. I think I think I saw I think I saw the pilot. I think that was it. So I saw that, and I think I was I was interested, but I wasn't sure. I'm like, do I want to keep watching this? And I think I might keep checking it out. Just to, yeah. you know, like I said, it's ten episodes. I mean, it's not gonna you know, it's not gonna right. It's not that big of a commitment. So yeah, they tease you with some some Lovecraftian elements too. They tease you with an appearance of Cthulhu, and you're just like, ooh, and then you never see him again. Uh, you know, and yeah, so it's um, it, it's it's quite the concept is fantastic. Yeah. I didn't think the execution was that great. And and speaking of that kind of thing, you know, I finally, since I have HBO or uh, excuse me, Showtime, I was able to go back and I was able to finish the re the the not reimagining, but the next 
uh, installment of Penny Dreadful, City of Angels. Um, okay. They had Natalie Dormer in it, who was in Game of Thrones. Um, okay. She plays an interesting witch-type character. Um, okay. And uh, it's got Nathan Lane in it. And talk about noir, right? It's uh, it's very noir, but it's supernatural uh, elements as well. It's all about Los Angeles. And, um, you know, they're, they're uh, talking about building the Arroyo Seco uh, freeway. And there's Nazis involved and that kind of thing. Only one season. They're not going to do another season of it, unfortunately. Um, they did three seasons of the original Penny Dreadful, which was really an homage to universal horror films of the, the 30s and 40s and early 50s. Um, so, um, you know, but I do think the the future of horror serialized television is, is bright, uh, especially with the Mike Flanagan's of the world. But then mm-hmm. some other stuff like Cowboy Bebop just got canceled, um, yeah. you know, and not necessarily horror, but kind of a little fantasy. Um you know, there's some other stuff that, uh, you know, I haven't finished. Uh, God, what the hell was the name of the show? I can't remember. I think it was Natalie Dormer's father was in it. I can't remember what the hell it was called. It was a fantasy okay. show. Um, then there was another one that, that had uh, Orlando Bloom in it. Um, that uh, I forget the name of that one, but it, it was, a, a, they, again, these noir influences on all these different things. Um, you know, even, even fantasy programs. Um, right, right. So, but, uh, but yeah, the, I think, you know, unfortunately, and this, this happened to me with Carnival, if you remember Carnival on HBO. I, I remember hearing about it. I never saw it, though. It, it, it's, it's one of these things. You get invested in these serialized programs, which are great because it's like an extended movie. Um, and then when they cancel it on you, you end up twisting in the wind. Right. And, and right, you know, right. I, I was so emotionally invested in this program. Now it's gone. Right. Right. You know, and I, th- I think you're, you're going to find that, that the new thing that got canceled was Cowboy Bebop. I wasn't watching it, but Angie was, and uh, she liked it. And now it's gone. So, but then you have shows like The Boys, and, uh, you know, you want to get your darker superhero uh, fix in. You got that show, and, uh, you know, there's plenty of stuff. Um, as we always talk about, um, when we have you on the show, I mean, we started with music. It's only fitting to end with music. Uh, you write for Pop Matters. You've forgotten more about music than I'll ever know, even though we both uh, spend time as disc jockeys. What is going on in the current world of music, especially with regards to what you're writing about? Um, that's a really good question. I... Um Oh boy, I, I haven't been. <laughs> this isn't stump the music guy. <laughs> um, I will say this. I will say some stuff. I I'm, I haven't. My writing has kind of slowed down as the year has been winding down because they've been getting into year end lists, and I actually did not participate in that just because I didn't really have the time to do it. Um, but I will say there's some interesting reissues that have come out recently. And we talked last time we talked about the tattoo you deluxe edition. We talked about yeah. that replacements reissue. Um, uh, someone who I've been a fan of for a long time. And I know you're, you, you know, this is Paul Weller, formerly yep. of the jam and the style council. A couple of his 
earlier albums have been reissued on vinyl and it's really great news because one of them is a is an acoustic uh unplugged live album that he made uh 20 years ago called days of speed which is really really good and it's it, it's it's out on vinyl now for the well it, when it first came out uh it was an extremely limited release in vinyl but now it's back in vinyl and then an album he made in 2002 called illumination is um not one of his not one of my favorite albums of his, but it's still a solid album and it's, it's on vinyl. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, some more experimental stuff. I've obviously been doing a lot of that lately. There's a guitarist named Daniel Weish, who I'm a big fan of. He made an album called earthwork and it's more kind of instrumental weirdness. Um, there's a really <laughs> interesting, that's what it is. There's a really instrumental weirdness. Did you write that? Yeah. Was that your, your hook? Yeah. I probably did, yeah. There's a really cool there's a really cool band out of Chicago called Spirits Having Fun and they're this real really quirky indie pop uh band and their second album came out a couple months ago and I reviewed it for Pop Matters. It's very imaginatively titled Two because it's their second album. And um kind of like Genesis also- Genesis, uh you know. Yeah, Queen Queen 2, you know, sure. Two, but that's the name of the album, Two. Um and this came out a couple months ago, but I really want to put in a plug for it because it's one of my favorite albums of the year. A guy named Nico Headley, who is sort of a indie folk singer songwriter, made an album in September called Painterly, which is one of my favorite albums of the year and a really interesting kind of. You know, you talk about that Laurel Canyon sound with the sort of like folky um, singer songwriter vibe to it. This is like that. Um, it's kind of like sounds a little bit like the band and then it's got like like some horns and a little bit of that kind of like soulful sound to it but um highly recommend that and um uh i you know i don't i'm sure i'm going to be reviewing a bunch of stuff i i'm i've I've just i've decided to really kind of like get back into the swing of things really like full on in january just because you know, with COVID and all this other shit that's happened over the last couple of months, it's just been really hard to concentrate on it. I'm learning a new job and all that, but hopefully yeah. come January, I'll be back to reviewing on a more consistent basis. But um, those are a few of the things just in the last couple of months that are really kind of like uh, I've really enjoyed and have been sort of championing. Um, but uh, yeah, all my stuff can be found at popmanners.com. And, uh, you know, um, just going to keep plugging along with that. And, uh, a great way to just you know get familiar with a lot of cool stuff that's happening and a lot of you know there's a lot of as i said before um there's a lot of great music out there it's just uh you gotta look for it you know what i mean you gotta you gotta search and you gotta go on Bandcamp and you gotta figure out you know go to you know your serious xm and, and see what 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 you're into and then just you know support new music i'm just like a really big fan of that as always yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but at the same time, it is the holiday season, and I'm a big fan of nostalgic Christmas music, right? I'm not a big fan of, of newer stuff, although uh, I make an exception for Colby Calais and uh, Mistletoe. But, um, you know, uh, I tend to tell my Alexa devices this time of year to, to play uh, classic holiday music. Um Michael Bublé has uh, his Christmas special coming up, and, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, you know, it doesn't look like uh, ass clowns like Justin Bieber are part of the lineup this year. Uh-oh. So, yeah. Uh, you know, when you grow up on, like, the Bob Hope special and the Perry Como, screw Perry Como, but anyway, 
Um, yeah, maybe you're saying. Yeah. When you grow up on that kind of thing and, and nobody really, like, you know, has been able to recreate Andy Williams or Dean Martin or any of those, uh, and Buble gives it a shot, uh, you know, a few years back, he, he had Bieber on and kind of ruined the thing. Um, so it looks like uh, this year he's got a, a solid lineup, so I'm going to give that a shot. I tried watching the uh, LL Cool J hosted uh, National Christmas Tree Lighting. Uh, oh, was that abysmal. That was not good. Um <laughs> And then, you know, on Thanksgiving. Did you think it was going to be awesome? I had no idea what the hell to expect. I just turned it on because I'm like, yeah, let's see what this is about. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't watch the Rockefeller thing, even though I've been in New York City around that time, you know, and seen the tree. And yeah, it's great. Um, you know, beautiful tree. And But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this time of year for me, I get really, really nostalgic. And, you know, I've got my favorite Christmas uh, movies that I like to watch and christmas music i like to listen to and it's typically as much as you like to discover new stuff and and you and i have a history of discovering new mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. um you know i tend to uh to go to uh, lean toward the frank sinatra bing crosby uh nat king cole and and uh and folks like that at this time of year well yeah i mean there's you know nothing beats the classics i i do think and this is maybe sort of somewhat related but i uh, have always enjoyed some of my favorite ones are, you know, I love the Phil Spector Christmas album. You know, that's some really good, you know, sort of classic old school soul Christmas. And I also am a big fan of the ultra lounge Christmas cocktails, which is the sort of like the, the sort of loungy Christmas stuff, which um, is fun and weird. And just, it, it has sort of a classic feel to it, but it's with a little bit of a twist. So, um, that's kind of like, in terms of like classic Christmas stuff, I love that stuff too. And of course, Vince Guaraldi. Oh yeah. That. No, you can't go wrong with the, with Vince. I mean, that's Edel. timeless. Yes. That's timeless. And, and it's, you know, it's a jazz trio. So, you know, that's right up our Bailey, yeah. right up our alley anyway. So that's our yeah, bailiwick. Yeah. And, uh, so, but, uh, you know, Chris, uh, we uh, we had Thanksgiving. We got Christmas coming up. We got New Year's. So uh, I wish you and yours a very 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 happy holiday season. You as well, absolutely. Looking forward to doing more of these uh, next year and beyond. It's always a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, now that we're back in the rhythm, and I'm gainfully employed and can afford the SoundCloud account, um, we are. Uh, and I have figured out how to put the podcast like everywhere so it's on spotify now and amazon I noticed music it's on spotify yeah. and as a spotify fan i i greatly appreciate that it's a I really figured great you way would. to access it yeah absolutely thank you for that yep so uh spotify it's uh it'll be on pandora eventually they have this long drawn out approval process but it's on amazon music audible uh google play uh so where finer podcasts are found you can find the uh, get the knack podcast so uh Excellent. anything else uh to add at this point oh see now i feel like i have to say something um no i have nothing else to add again always a pleasure (laughs) and uh and uh you know let's uh um i would say let's let's make 2022 an even better year but you know what we tried to say that a year ago and i don't know if that really worked um, it's a lot better because Donald Trump's not president and, and That's true. Some, some groovy things have happened. We're still fighting COVID, but 
you know, hopefully uh, in we 2020. We both have jobs. Yep. We both have jobs. We're both gainfully employed. And, you, you know, go. yeah, uh, I don't make resolutions. I set goals. So, but uh, more fiction coming from me, hopefully in 2022. And uh, great. yeah, I got my first short story published uh, uh, very recently at the end of October. So first time I've ever had a short story published. So that made me happy. Um, yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Knack podcast. For my good friend and old Navy buddy who writes for PopMatters.com, Chris Ingalls, I have been Jerry Knack, and he still is Chris Ingalls. We'll talk to you <laughs> next week. I've got Anthony Hogg, who is an expert in all things vampire lore, vampire literature, Um been trying to get him on the show for quite a while. We got Anthony Hogg coming up next week, so you don't want to miss that one. He's out of Australia, so he'll be my third international guest, I believe. So uh, you don't want to miss that show. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Get to Knack podcast. We will talk to you next week.